What is up, Lake Hills Church? My name's Andrew, I'm the new family pastor, and right now I'm in beautiful Breckenridge, Colorado with our students, and we are having a blast. This week, we've been tearing up the mountains, we've been white water rafting, we've been hiking, we've been on horses, amusement parks, anything that the mountains got to offer, we've been taking it, and it's been fantastic. But most importantly, all these students behind me right here, they've been getting to connect with one another. They've been getting to connect with their leaders and they've been able to connect with God. There's some amazing moments of life change that have been happening right here at this camp. And I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for making this possible. Through your giving, through your generosity, through your faithfulness, you've made camp possible for all these kids. It has been an amazing week, but instead of me telling you more about it, check this out. Guys, wow, what an incredible week. I had the privilege of being with our students uh, this past week in Breckenridge, and man, it was just amazing to see God work in their lives through worship, through the message, through community of being with each other, and obviously the, the ton of fun that they were having, you could see in the video, was just incredible to witness. So I wanted to just echo something that uh, Andrew said in that video, and that is that we are so grateful to you, for those of you who prayed for this week, uh, for those who may have given financially for this week to happen, and then those who maybe gave up your time to serve this week. We know that's a big deal as well. And so all of those things, we believe, makes a massive difference. Uh, we believe it makes a difference for eternity, and so thank you very much for that. It was an incredible week. Hey, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Derek, and I am the worship pastor here at Lake Hills, and excited to be helping us continue in the sermon series that we have been in for the last few weeks called The God of Power. And in this series, we've been looking at really what you could call maybe the illusion of power in the fact that we actually don't have that much power or control in our own lives. And we've been contrasting that with the ultimate power of God. And we've been looking at a couple of his attributes and how those interact and intersect in our lives. And today, we're gonna be looking at the power of joy. The power of joy. Obviously, joy is an attribute of God, and yet it's also something that he calls us to, as followers of him, to be able to live a life full of joy and abundance in him. And so today, we're gonna look at how do we do that? What is joy? Is this something that is tangible? Uh, can we manufacture it for ourselves? 
Is it conditional to our circumstances? What does it mean to live a life full of joy in Christ? And so we're gonna be looking at that together this morning and just in full honesty and transparency with you guys, uh, this for me is not necessarily the easiest topic to speak on because I feel like for, for myself, I have sometimes failed in the past to understand the fullness of joy in certain seasons, in seasons that have been difficult or full of hardship. Maybe you're in a season like that currently and, and maybe you feel like, man, it is hard to see where joy exists in my life. And I've definitely been there and here's the great news. We have all been here. I think everybody can look back to a season of life where this has been the case, where you've gone through sor sorrow or suffering or hardship. And I think when we understand how God designed joy to work in our lives, that's where it shifts our perspective. We're able to walk through these seasons maybe a little bit differently. And so that's what we're gonna tackle today. Uh, in this series that we've been in, we've looked at a collection of psalms uh, that are called the Songs of Ascent. And these psalms are songs that the Israelites would have sang as they ascended to Jerusalem three times a year for three annual worship festivals. And so the Song of Ascent that we're looking at today is gonna be in Psalm chapter 126. And so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with us today. We're gonna read through this short chapter first. There's six verses. And, uh, and then we're gonna kind of break these out and see if we can pull out what we are looking into for joy today. So here we go. Psalm chapter 126 says this. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy, and it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, shall return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Those are the six verses in this chapter of Psalm 126. And basically what we see here is that the Israelites are singing about God's faithfulness. They're singing about the joy they are experiencing because of the faithfulness of God, both what he did for them, the great things in the past, but also what they were believing for for the future. We sang about that in the first song this morning, knowing that he's done great things and we're believing that he's gonna do it again. And so this is what they're singing about in this passage. And I wanna do a little exercise with us this morning that's gonna help us pull some things out of this. And in order to do that, we're gonna go back to school today, if that's okay. I know as Alice Cooper famously put it, school's out for summer, right? I get that, I understand. We're gonna do a little summer school this morning because I really wanna use this to, to pull out some of these truths. And I know we've asked this question before, but I wanna pull the audience real quick one more time. And the question is, between math and English, where's our math people at? You prefer math, you're better at math, you would take math over English any day. Okay, cool. All right, flip side of that, what about English? Who would take English, you're better at English, you don't like math, it feels like we're kind of split 50-50. How many of you would be honest in front of God and everybody else and say, you don't like either one of them? <laughs> okay, this is probably the camp that I fall into. But regardless of whether you're taking math or English, we've got something for both of you in this little exercise that we're gonna do. And we're gonna start with English. And what we're gonna do in just a minute is we're gonna look at the first couple verses of this passage, and our team is gonna underline a couple of these words that we're gonna see here. And I want you to think about when you see these words, what is the thing that they have in common as it relates to the English subject? 
okay? So we can go ahead and put these up here on the screen. Uh, the words that we're seeing here are were and was, right? In verse two, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. So think about what those two words may have in common as it relates to the English language. And I'll give you a hint. We are not talking about parts of speech. So don't think about noun, verb, adjective, adverb, the hundred other things that follow that. Think about more what these words mean as opposed to really what they are. And we'll give you a second to think about that because the next thing that we're gonna do in just a minute is we're gonna underline a couple other words in the end of this passage. And I want you to think about what these two words have in common. We can go ahead and put those up. This is gonna be in verse five. Our words are will and shall. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, shall return with songs of joy. So think about that, will and shall. What do those two have in common as it relates to the English language? And the last thing we're gonna do for this exercise is, and I know you can't see it all on the screen together, but I want you to think about the difference in the set of these words, right? First we have were and was, then we have will and shall. What are the difference between those sets of words? Anybody wanna take a guess? Anybody think they know? Yes, everybody's saying it, this is great. All right, the first set of words is past tense, right? Were, was, if you were doing something and you're not anymore, that's in the past, right? Uh, the second set of words is future tense, right? Something that you are going to do in the future. You guys are great, you just passed English in summer school, that's fantastic. We're gonna come back to this in just a minute, uh, but first, we gotta give something to our math nerds out there. Wave your hand again if you're the math nerd, you want a math problem here. Great, here it is. Um, and I know you can't see this all together on the screen, but remember there were six verses of this chapter. Six verses. So the question for the math people out there is which verse is the middle of this passage? Six verses, which one is the middle? And guys, I'm asking this question honestly because I have no idea what the answer is. I spent, I, I'm not even joking with you, about 30 minutes trying to figure this out. I Googled right, how you find the middle of six and when it comes to verses in the Bible. Could not figure it out. So if you have an idea, a math person, anyone who wants to take a guess at which verse out of the six is the middle, feel free. Yeah, th think it would be three. Yeah, that's what I thought too. And, and so I thought, man, you could take six and you could divide it by two. That gives you three. That's the middle. And I, th I think we're wrong on this because when you divide by two, six divided by two gives you three. That's half. So you have three on this side, three on this side. There's still got to be something in the middle, right? Well, the only thing that I can think of, and I don't know if this is accurate mathematically, but the only thing I could come up with is that there isn't one verse that is the middle of this passage, right? It's kind of a trick question. I think there would be two verses because you've got verse one and two at the top, you've got verse five and six at the bottom, which leaves verses three and four in the middle. And again, I have no idea if that is actually math. I'm, I'm more English than I am math and I'm not great at either of them. So, but, but we're gonna go with this today because there's something I wanna pull out of the middle-ish of this chapter for us this morning and we're gonna go back to English in the second part of verse three. So I think we are kind of right here, somewhere in the middle. We've got one more word we're gonna underline. You guys can go ahead and put it up. Verse three, the Lord has done great things for us and we are 
filled with joy, right? This is the tense that was missing in the previous exercise that we did because everything up until verse three is past tense. Everything after verse three is future tense. And here we see the Israelites as they are singing this song in the present are saying we are filled with joy. And here's the takeaway of this entire chapter. This is where we're gonna spend the rest of our time today. And that is that when it comes to joy, our present joy has a past and a future. Our present joy has a past and a future. So if we're talking about living and experiencing joy to the full, what that means is it's in some ways tied to our past and it's also anchored in our future. So that's what we're gonna look at today. We've got three points, they're really simple. I'm sure you can guess what they are, past, present, and future. And we're gonna look at the story of the Israelites and how we can see how they experience joy in all of these, but also how we can go through life in all of these tenses and seasons, figuring out what joy is for us. All right, so the first thing we're gonna look at, point one, is the past. And we're gonna take a look at the first two verses again in this chapter, and this is addressing the past experience of the Israelites. Verse one says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And remember, for those who may have been here last week, you will remember Pastor Mac talked about that word Zion, just means the city of Jerusalem. So anytime you see that word Zion, just replace it with Jerusalem. And that phrase, restored the fortunes of, I have a footnote in in my study Bible as I was looking at preparing for this today, and that footnote said that this could be translated as brought back the captives to. So in verse one, you could say that when the Lord brought back the captives to Jerusalem, we were like those who dreamed. There's another footnote that said this could be translated, those restored to health. So I know that's a lot. We're breaking down some language here in verse one, but verse one, you could translate as saying, When the Lord brought the captives to Jerusalem, we were like those restored to health. And then it goes on and it says their mouths were filled with laughter and joy and all of those things. But what does that mean? What does captives coming back to Jerusalem have anything to do with what we're talking about today in terms of joy? In order to understand that, we gotta take a look at the past of the Israelites. And I'm gonna briefly just explain, give you an overview of what they experienced in their past because all throughout the Old Testament, God gives commands for his people, the Israelites, and says, this is how I want you to live. And it was conditional. He said, if you obey the commands that I give you, then in return, he was going to bless them. He said, I will be your God, you will be my people, it will go well with you. And on the other side of things, he says, if you don't obey the commands that I have for you, then God says, I'm gonna do the opposite. I'm actually going to fight against you myself. I'm going to allow your enemies to conquer you, to capture you, and it will not go well with you. And what we see in the Old Testament is the Israelites enter this cycle over and over again where they would disobey God. So God did what he said. He allowed their enemies to conquer them, to enslave them. And then after a little bit of time, the Israelites would say, man, that wasn't a great idea. I'm gonna repent. We're gonna cry out to God to rescue us. And God would rescue them. And you would think that it would stop at one cycle, right? You would think the Israelites would say, man, that was not a great experience for us. Let's just obey the laws that God has given. And yet we don't see that happen because all throughout the Old Testament, they enter the same cycle over and over of disobedience, of being captured, of crying out to God and repenting, and then God rescuing. 
and then disobedience, and then captivity, and then calling out to God for freedom, and then him rescuing and bringing them into that. We see this over and over, and this culminates into something that was called the exile. I don't know if you've heard the term the exile before, but basically all this is, is this is a period of time where the nation of Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar comes in and conquers Judah, destroys the city of Jerusalem, so destroys Zion, they kill a bunch of the Israelites, and the Israelites that they don't kill, they carry back with them as slaves to live in Babylon. And so here you have the Israelites that are exiled out of Jerusalem, they're now slaves in Babylon. Now, you can imagine this is probably a season for the Israelites of what would seem to be a lack of joy, right? This is a season of intense suffering, of displacement, of questioning, um, and in fact, many of the Psalms you can look through and they are crying out to God saying, how can we even worship you in a foreign land? They are experiencing extreme hardship here. And yet we know the end of the story. We know that God didn't leave them there, that he brings them back. He restores Jerusalem. And yet they didn't know that at the time. And it also didn't take away from the hardship that they experienced. And so they're singing about this in the song of ascent where they're referencing their past. And when the Lord brought the captives back to Jerusalem and restored them, there their joy was. And they're singing about this in the Song of Ascent. Now here's the interesting thing about the word ascent. In order to have ascent, one of the things that you have to have first is descent, right, into the low places. Right, this past week in, in Breckenridge, one of the things that I would do every single morning was just sit outside our room on the balcony and just look up at the incredible mountains that were there. And I didn't realize this until preparing for this week, but, but I recognized this as I was looking at these mountains. The only reason that I knew what a mountain was, and the only reason why we call a mountain a mountain, is because it has what? It has a peak at the top, but it also has a low point, right? If a mountain had no low point and it was just here, it wouldn't be a mountain, right? It would be flat. A mountain has a peak, a mountain has a low point, and I believe the same is true for us, when we experience joy, in order to fully understand and experience joy, which we would often call the mountaintop experiences of fulfillment and contentment and peace and happiness, in order to understand that, we have to understand the low points first. We have to understand what it looks like to walk through seasons of life of hardship, of sorrow, of disappointment, right? Christian joy is not an escape from those things. It's actually understanding that in those things, God is still present. And I believe if we view God as our rescuer, as the Israelites did, this is where we experience the fullness of joy. Because you got to imagine what they're singing about here is the fact that joy was produced from their suffering. And I think that's encouragement for us, for anybody who's maybe in this room walking through a season of suffering or sorrow or disappointment Joy isn't just on the other side of that. I believe joy is actually produced by that if we allow God to be our rescuer. Because what they're singing about here is their joy was made full because they experienced the suffering of captivity. If they had not experienced the suffering of captivity, there wouldn't have been a need for God to intervene. Therefore, they would not have experienced the joy that was on the other side of that. And that is what allowed them to, to step into the fullness of joy in their present. And that's what we're gonna look, look at as we continue on into the next point, point number two, the present. And we're gonna look at verses three and four. This is, these are the verses that are the two middle verses of this passage. And it says this in verse three, the Lord has done great things for us and we are 
filled with joy. And so according to this passage, one reason for the Israelites experiencing the joy that they are experiencing is because of what? Because God did good things for them, right? I think that's easy for us to identify with. And yet what we see, if we move on into verse four, while they're still in the present, they also say, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. And so on the one hand, they're saying, hey, a reason for my joy is because God has done great things for me. And yet, on the other hand, if you look at that word restore, there's things that God has not done for them yet that they're saying we're believing for, it hasn't happened, and yet in the present, we are still full of joy. I think one of the things that we struggle with, uh, that at least I struggle with oftentimes, is attaching joy to our present circumstances, right? When things in life are going good, when, when our work is fulfilling, when our uh, family is doing great, when God seems to be doing good things for us in life, our joy is full, right? That, that's the easy part. I think everybody can identify with that. And yet, the harder step that we have making is going into the next part of this verse that really completes the cycle of joy where we say, hey, even when my life circumstance is not good, I can still trust and anchor my faith that God is, and therefore I can experience joy in that relationship with him even when circumstances are not good. One of, the, uh, one of my favorite questions that I've ever heard asked, I don't even remember who asked this question, but the question has stuck with me really almost my whole life, and the question is this. If God never did another thing for you, is what he has done in the past enough? If God has never, if God never does another good thing for you in your life, is what he has already done enough? And that is a tough question to answer, and that's a tough question to answer honestly. And yet I think until we get to the place where we can say, yes, it would be enough, I don't think we will fully experience true joy. Now here's the great news, that's not gonna happen. God promises to be with us. He said he will never leave us or forsake us. This is what gives us the hope of the future and this is what we anchor our faith in and this is also what leads us into our final point for today. Point number three, the future because our present joy has a past but it also has a future. Looking at the last two verses of this passage in verse five, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. And those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, shall return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. Now, I don't know how much sense this makes to us right now because we kind of live in a different culture um, than maybe what this was written, uh, the target audience for, but I wanna help us understand this a little bit. And in order to do that, I got another question. This time, it's for the parents in the room. If you're a parent, just raise your hand real quick, wave at me, parents. All right, I got a question for you, and I want you to think about this question only in terms of finances, okay? Financially only, okay? And the question is this. When it comes to your kids, are your kids an asset financially, or are they a liability financially? Meaning, do they make you money, which would make them an asset, in which case, hold on to them, or do they take money from you? I think in our culture, this does not take very long to figure out. I think most of us would answer, our kids are definitely a financial liability. We spend money. They drain our bank account more than they add to it. And it's interesting because there was a study done uh, that, that said that by the time you put one of your kids through high school, it's estimated that you would have spent 
about $65,000 on that kid. Now, give or take, I don't, know, I don't know how long ago this study was done and cost of living and all that, but that means starting from birth, you got birth costs and you've got diapers and you've got food and you've got clothing and as they grow, you've got more food, you've got bigger clothes, you've got preschool, you've got daycare, schooling, um, when they get to high school or even before, you've got ex- extracurriculars, you've got all of these things. I mean, this list goes on and on. When they get a car, you've got car and your car insurance skyrockets, right? This is what happens and that's why in our culture, we look at this and we say, well, that's, that's a liability, that costs us money. But in the period of time that the Bible was written, they lived in an agrarian society, farming was a big deal, and it was actually the opposite with their kids. It was actually estimated that each kid was worth about $25,000 in free labor, right? Free labor, that's a good thing, right, with your kids. You gotta think about how hard farming was, right? And there's a lot of work that has to be done. The farmers would have to hire on hired hands. And so instead, if they had kids, that replaces a hired hand, they don't have to pay, right? Free labor. So my math people out there, let's think. Let's think if you had 10 kids, which was not uncommon in that time period, right? You got 10 kids times $25,000, you got a quarter million dollars of free labor, which is incredible. And this is the disconnect often when we read the Bible, right? This passage is talking about things like sowing and reaping and planting and harvesting and cultivating. We don't use those words a ton in our society, right? But back in the Bible times, this is the way that they related to their audience. And this is what I wanna help us understand because the Israelites here are talking about sowing, about planting, about sowing with tears and reaping with joy. And so what does that look like for us? What does it mean to sow in hardship or suffering? Because this is what they're saying here. Let me ask you another question. How many of you have ever tried to plant something? Maybe it's been a single plant. Maybe it's been a garden. Okay. Now put your hands up again if the process of planting was way harder than what you thought it was going to be. Anybody? Yeah, I think this is a universal law of farming and planting. Uh, This is something that my wife and I experienced, my wife more so than me. But she started a garden at our house about two years ago. She started from the very beginning, right? Just empty ground. Not, Not a lot of resources, not a lot of knowledge. There had to be a lot of things that she poured into researching and learning. And I think we would both say that through that process, it was a lot harder than what we thought. We thought, man, we just put stuff in the ground to water it and it's gonna grow and it's gonna be awesome. And yet then you realize there's heat and there's bugs and there's all these things that you gotta figure out how to, how to manage in the gardening. And here's what's crazy about this. I mean, the garden is doing well. And at the same time, we learn every year, here's some things that we would do different next season. But what's crazy about this is that it's hard to garden and to plant and to farm even in an environment that's pretty conducive to growing. Right? Texas is not the worst place to grow things. Right? It's definitely not the easiest, but it's not the hardest. And what blows my mind is thinking about the harshest environments on the earth and how farmers approach farming, still being able to be successful. The Negev is one of these places. We saw this in verse four. The Israelites were praying, restore our fortunes like streams in the Negev. Now, I wanna highlight just a couple of the conditions of the Negev, and I want you to think about these in terms of farming. The Negev is a desert So it is super dry, it's arid, it doesn't get a lot of rainfall. They say about average of five inches. 
the soil is sandy and it's rocky. In the desert, there's extreme temperature fluctuations through seasons, but also through days, right? It will be really hot during the day. It'll be cold at night. And if you've ever tried to grow something with huge temperature fluctuations, you're gonna know this is tough to do. There are sandstorms and windstorms. This is a harsh environment for farmers. This is an environment of hardship for them. And yet, they defy the odds and they're able to be successful in what they grow. Why? There are a couple reasons why. One, they keep sowing the seed, right? They keep putting the seed in the ground. Number two, they control the things that they can control, right? Farming is hard, and there's ha there has to be a lot of research done. They've gotta be innovative, figuring out how to get water from here to there. They control what's in their power to control. But then three, there's an element of trust, of things outside of their control. They say, man, I'm trusting that just one rainfall can bring about incredible life. And it's amazing to see that happen, that they actually are successful. But what does that mean for us? Because I think there's a lot of things that we can learn from these farmers in harsh environments. What does it mean to sow in hardship? And here's what I think it is. We're gonna put up a quote real quick from uh, one of my favorite guys to listen to. His name is Eugene Peterson. He's got a ton of great quotes and he's got probably one of the best on this subject. And he says this, the hard work of sowing seed in what looks like perfectly empty earth has a time of harvest. He says this, all suffering, pain, emptiness, disappointment is seed. Sow it in God and he will finally bring a crop of joy from it. So what's that mean for us? When you look at that passage that says to sow in tears and those who weep will bring about a harvest of joy, what does that mean for us? I think we've all been given, according to this quote, all been given seeds of disappointment, of sorrow, of discouragement, of emptiness, of hardship, of pain. We've all been given those seeds, and some of us have been given multiple of those seeds throughout different seasons of our lives. And yet, we all have three options for what to do with those seeds. We can, one, discard the seeds, right? This is living a life in despair. This is giving up. This is saying, you know what? My circumstances right now are so hard that I'm not gonna trust God. I'm not gonna believe him for big things. I'm just gonna despair, throw the seed away, and give up. Second option is we can hold on to those seeds with anger, with bitterness. We can say, man, I'm so angry at the situation that I'm in. I'm angry at God for allowing me to experience this hardship and suffering. And we can live life angry, holding on closed-fisted, or number three, as this quote said, we can sow it in God. We can plant it believing that he's gonna bring about a harvest of joy. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to plant, to sow in God? I believe it's exactly what Romans 8, 28 says. It's believing that God works all things together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And this doesn't mean that everything that happens in our life is good because we can all agree that that's not the case. But it just means in the big picture, what God does is he takes all of those things. He takes the mountaintop experiences. He also takes the low points in our life. He works them together for ultimate good. This is us saying that I trust that God is in control, that his ways are better than my ways. And when I choose to submit every season, the good seasons and the hard seasons in him, 
This is where we find the fullness of joy. One of the best ways that I can think of to describe joy is trusting and believing in God, knowing that he is good even when life is not. Trusting that God is good even when life is not. And that's much easier to say than it is to do. But I think when we do that, we experience this fullness of joy in relationship with him because that's the thing that carries us through those hard seasons, relationship. It's not circumstances. It's relationship with Jesus. And what's so interesting is it's not just for our joy, but it's also for his joy. It's kind of weird to think about sometimes that God actually has emotions. And one of those is joy. The Bible says this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse two, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Think about that, what Jesus endured, the pain, the suffering, the hardship, knowing that God has experienced more hardship than we will ever experience in our life, and therefore we know that he knows what it is that we're walking through and going through. He is the ultimate example of sowing tears that reap joy. Think about the tears he would have sowed on the cross And yet, it says it was for the joy set before him that he endured. What is that joy? A joy is relationship with him. He desires relationship with us. And when we get to the place where we deeply desire that same relationship, this is the beginning of the fullness of joy that we get to experience. I wanna close down today just kind of asking you this. Maybe maybe you're in the room today and and you haven't experienced the fullness of joy that Jesus offers because you've never stepped into a relationship with him. The great news for this is the Bible says that we only have to do two things in order to step into a relationship with Jesus. It's one, we have to believe in our heart that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he raised from the dead. And the Bible says, number two, that we confess with our mouth that he is Lord. And again, this is the beginning of all joy that we will experience in our life. And so I wanna ask you this, I'm gonna ask everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. And I wanna talk to you, if that's you in the room this morning, and you haven't experienced that, but you'd say, I want to. I wanna lead you in a very simple prayer that you can pray after me, and you can pray it quietly, but pray it to God, where you would say, God, thank you so much for loving me. Enough to send your son Jesus to endure the cross, to endure suffering and pain and sorrow on my behalf so that I can experience joy in a relationship with you. I believe that you rose from the dead so that I can be raised to life. And today I make you my Lord. Help me to live every day from here on out the best that I know how to follow after you. With every head bowed and every eye still closed, If that was you and you prayed that prayer, we wanna say a couple things. One, this is the best and biggest decision that you will ever make in your entire life. And it's just the first step as well. We wanna celebrate that. We also wanna help in what comes next. I'll talk about that in just a minute. But the other thing that we would love to ask you to do is to make a physical mark this morning where you can look back on and say, today was the day that I gave, gave my life to Jesus. In order to do that on the count of three, nobody's looking around, but we just wanna ask you, just slip your hand up in the air. 
If you prayed that prayer, just let us know today on the count of three. One, two, three. Just put your hand up in the air and say, today I stepped into the fullness of joy with the person of Jesus Christ. And our tradition around here, we celebrate that with you. We're gonna put our hands, as you put your hands down, we're gonna put our hands together and say, welcome home. Welcome home.